New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The world is in crisis, but we don't have to be. We all know resilient people who bounce back from personal challenges and create their best lives. That's the promise of change. Others stress out and melt down, losing hope and health. That's the danger in times of change. The good news is that resilience isn't a genetic gift for the lucky few. It's an easily understood skill that anyone can practice and master. This quest serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Joan Borisenko. Joan Borisenko is a world-renowned expert in stress management and mind-body medicine. Joan received her doctoral and postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School, where she later served as an instructor in medicine. A biologist as well as a licensed psychologist and spiritual educator, she's a pioneer in psychoneuroimmunology and the co-founder and former director of one of the first mind-body clinics in the country. A New York Times bestselling author who has written numerous books, she's a journalist and the host of her own radio show. Joan's the author of It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. Join us for the next hour as we explore the practice of resilience with our guest, Dr. Joan Borsenko. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Joan, welcome. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm always so delighted to be back, to be interviewed with you, is to learn much more about what I think. Well, it's nice to have I you back, it. actually. Um, it, it, one of the things that, in the beginning of the, of the, of the book itself, you were, you were referring to Elia Prigogine. And uh, tell us about Elia Prigogine and why he's important. Well, people, when when they think of change, I think, the tendency for those of us who are not so resilient is to default right away to pessimist and worst-case thinking. It's, ah, oh, the sky's falling, it's the end of the world, 2012 is coming, what are we going to do? And Ilya Prigogine won a Nobel Prize for a different view of change, which was uh, gave rise to what he called the theory of dissipative structures. And what he demonstrated was whether you're talking about a human civilization, a bacterial civilization, the civilization of atoms and molecules, or of stars in the heavens, what happens is that in order to jump to a new order of organization, the old order has to break down first. So, in Nietzsche's word, I would say, uh, you know, you have to look at chaos as a maybe prelude to a dancing star. So that's how I'm thinking about it and how resilient people think about the dissolution of what was and the opening up of what can be. 
You referred to yourself at some point about you're a recovering pessimist. That's right. <laughs> Tell us that. Why are you recovering pessimism? You know, I think it comes in my DNA, Michael. I come from a long line of fetching Jewish mothers and grandmothers who always thought about the worst. And when you introduced the program, you said, well, about a half of resilience is genetic. And this is absolutely true. So part of our thinking style is determined that way by our DNA. And the other 50% is learned. So I've had to work hard with the 50% that's learned to, as soon as I hear myself doing a worst-case scenario, to really back off. And, you know, pessimism is a very interesting thought form. And, of course, we have the work of the father of positive psychology, who's at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Martin Seligman. Martin Seligman. He's awesome. He's so good. He's a pessimist like me, which is why he has been able to elucidate optimism and realism in such good ways. And what he's shown us is that you can only define pessimism in this one way. And that is by taking a look at how you think when something bad happens or something that you judge to be bad. And this is called your explanatory style. So, for example, when I was working in a hospital setting and people came in uh, in the early days of the AIDS epidemic or they came in with cancer, I'd always ask them, do you have a theory about why you're ill? And that allowed me to look at what their thinking style was. And people who said, well, you know, I'm ill because I've been a bad person and God is punishing me for my sins. Or people who say, well, I'm ill and it's because I've been thinking wrong all my life. These are pessimists because they think in a way that's personal. They blame themselves. The whole world revolves around some mistake that they made. And then... There are two more P's in the definition of the pessimistic explanatory style. So we looked at one, taking it personally. The second one is there's a pervasiveness in the thinking of a pessimist. So you think, well, not only am I sick, but I didn't take good enough care of my 401k. And furthermore, I'm going to die and I've never really been a good parent or I've never been a good spouse, or I never realized those dreams because there's something inherently wrong with me. So your whole life gets tainted uh, by self-blame and self-criticism. The third P is permanent, and that is, if you think everything is bad now, you've got neural circuits that ensure that that's not going to change. You're always going to think that things are bad. So personal, pervasive, and permanent. And, you know, Michael, as we all know, over all these years of personal growth, the first step in changing anything is you have to be aware that you're doing it. And once, once I became aware of what pessimistic thinking was, I was able to, like, back up a little bit and actually sometimes even have a good laugh. There it is. There's my genetic loading. I can hear my mother. I can hear my grandmother in my inner conversation. And then what you're supposed to do is dispute that pessimistic worldview, and that's important. The, uh, you, 
in early one of the early parts of the book, you referred to a, a conference that you went to in North Carolina, where there were a number of speakers and presenters, and you mentioned that afterwards that you, I guess, having dinner together and you were talking and so forth. Tell us about that. What happened there? This was an important conference because that's what the book came out of. I heard two stories that were so diametrically opposite that I thought, I have to write a book. And the first story was about uh, a young man in his 30s who was a stockbroker on Wall Street. And after the stock market crashed, and this was, you know, a little over a year ago now, after the stock market crashed, I can hardly say it, this young man chose to jump out of a window to his death. And all I could think was some mother's son, some father's son. Uh, He was married. He had a child. And you wonder, why for him was it the end of the world? He chose the end of the world. And then at the same conference, I met a wonderful woman. She was another, another speaker. And she was talking about success, and she really knew what success was. It's an inside job, Michael, because she and her husband had just lost everything. It had a big construction business, and it was gone. Mortgage brokerage business, it was gone. And they lost their home, and they were living in a little apartment with three little girls. And she was saying, you know, not to romanticize poverty, but... Her point of view was she and her husband are entrepreneurial. Uh, They would rebuild what they had. But in the meantime, they were spending more time with their daughters. And they could see that in many ways they had been chasing um, outer success and that it wasn't the way to inner happiness. And they were actually grateful for the hiatus that allowed them to redirect their lives. And that's what resilience is. That recognition, it's not the end of the world. And furthermore, resilience is more than just bouncing back from a stress like losing your house or losing your money. It's an innate transformation. For example, understanding that happiness is an inside job. And when I heard those two stories, I thought, I've got to write a book. Yeah, it's great. The... uh, um one of the things that happened to you too was that uh, you had an experience when your uh, when your father died, and that really turned your life around. Can you tell us about that? Well, I did. Um, my father had cancer right in the days where sometimes they still didn't tell people they were sick. It was poor communication generally with physicians, as this was oh my goodness, it was thirty five years ago that he died, and. They put him on a drug that was good for containing the cancer, but it drove him crazy, created a manic psychosis. And the doctor was not interested in discussing this with the family, just said, you know, he has to be on the drug. They took him off the drug for a surgery. He came into his right mind. And during the recovery from surgery, he made a decision that as I've gotten older, I've realized Everybody has the right to decide when to end their life, uh, to die with dignity. And without telling anyone, he chose to jump out of a window. It was um, shocking. It was difficult. It created a tremendous trauma for the entire family. 
And then, of course, when I heard about the young man on Wall Street, naturally I thought about my dad. But my response to my father's death, I was, you know, a young cancer cell biologist. I was teaching at Tufts Medical School. I was doing research. And I was doing research on cancer cells, Michael. And I thought to myself, how can you know so much about cells and so little about people? And I thought, does this happen to many people with cancer? Does it happen to their families? Why is the interest on curing the person's cells and ignoring the person? And it was just at the beginning of kind of whole person medicine. So I decided that I'd leave the laboratory, retrain as a psychologist, and work with people who had cancer and other life-threatening illnesses. So you can say that was a, a transformational experience to me and a good example of resilience because it's not like he died and I bounced back to what I was before. Uh, there was something deeply different about the way that I saw the world and how I wanted to serve the world as a result of his suicide. And going back to Prigazine's dissonant structures, uh, the idea of everything's connected, and and so you might even say that your father's uh, death was a gift for you. Well, it was a gift. And do you know, Michael, when, when I go all these years later to speak and before I'm standing uh, somewhere in front of a group of people who want to understand health and healing, I say a prayer of gratitude to my father. And frequently I'll, I'll say aloud, uh, were it not for what happened to him, I wouldn't be here with you. I'm speaking with Joan Borsenko. She's the author of It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Joan Borsenko. She's the author of It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. Joan, one of the things that that we all experience and go through is fear and stress. And, and it seems to be something that's kind of with us. And and some people are able to deal with it and others are not able to deal with it. Can we talk a little bit about fear and stress and and how all of us have it at different levels at different times? And some of us are able to handle it and others no, go another direction. Well, first of all, there's a, a good positive reason to have fear and stress because without it, you know, we wouldn't be able to change our course. We need that fight or flight response at times to get um, get past what's happening. 
I was once mugged in New York City. I really needed to run and to have enough strength to get through that. So that's positive uh, stress. And in fact, it's a very interesting thing. There was a study done years ago for people who had very low stress. And people who have very low stress are actually bored, and they release more stress hormones from boredom than they might if, in fact, they had more of a challenge. So part of it is linguistic, Michael. We need to understand what stress is. Uh, We need a certain amount of challenge, but we need mastery enough to meet the challenge. And then we're not feeling stress anymore. We're in this state that Mahai Chiksamahai calls flow when the challenge and the mastery are well met. But in terms of non-productive fear, that's when, well, there's no mugger to run away from. And there's just our thoughts, well, there could be a mugger. Uh, Maybe there's a mugger. We become our own inner terrorist is what goes on. And those are the kinds of thoughts that need to be changed. But, you know, I do want to say that there is... When we're pessimistic, we have more anxiety. People are more anxious who are pessimistic, and they are more depressed. And they're also, they tend to be more helpless in situations when something doesn't go their way. Instead of being able to see, hey, I can do something. I can change the world. I have agency. I have ability. I can optimize the situation. I can create a different future. There's more giving up. And so we need to look and to say, what's the underlying thought pattern, again, that gives rise to fear and stress, and how do we best work with that? And that's different for different people. And then one other point, some of us just come with our autonomic nervous system on overdrive. We tend to be hypervigilant, stress out very easily, and... That's why things like biofeedback, meditation, techniques that reset the sympathetic nervous system can be so important. After going, going back a bit to when you, when, you're, when you had your life change and you left Tufts University, and, and I, think, I don't think you got a lot of support at that time. People wonder, what, you, what are you doing? What are you giving up tenure and so forth? Uh, and you wound up co-founding a clinic with Herbert Benson, the author of Relaxation Response. And uh, then, then out of that, out of that process, uh, you wound up, you know, basically, you, you, I think you wrote your first book, and you were doing uh, an interview with uh, uh, a program called Sonia Live. Right. And, and, and you, you, you were really nervous. Can you tell us that story? It's a great little story. <laughs> Yes, it started in the green room. It was my first experience in the green room where my complexion matched the wall color. Uh, but the there was a book on the coffee table. Sonia is a psychologist, a very smart and savvy woman, uh, really one of the forerunners of people like Oprah. And uh, I loved I loved her show. But there was one of her books on the table, and it had a great title. And the title is... Why smart cookies don't crumble, and that was a it was a little bit of a lesson in resilience there that I had to talk to myself. I was terrified. I was going to be on 
television. I was just a young person, and it was frightening to me. I thought, my God, I can humiliate myself in front of millions of people all at the same time. And catching my pessimistic thinking and saying, you know, it's not the end of the world. You can back up here. It's just a television show, taking some deep breaths, calming down my sympathetic nervous system did bring me into that state where the stress met the challenge, and boy, I was in a flow state, and we had a grand time. Yeah, that's great, great. The, um, you talk about the secrets of uh, a resolute, like it was, one was a resolute acceptance of reality, then two was a deep belief uh, that life is meaningful, and third was an uncanny ability to improvise. Well, these are three of the major secrets of resilience, and there are others. The, you know, as a psychologist and as a medical scientist, I am very well grounded, and I'm like a stickler for the studies, the data. I want to know. They've studied kids who are resilient. They've studied people who've come out of Holocaust situations and lived to tell about it, and they want to know, okay... Who were the ones, for example, in prisoner of war situations? Who were the ones that came out with such serious PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that they were no longer really functional? And who managed quite well? Who was resilient in spite of these really hellish situations? So the going through this research, you can find that there are certain commonalities. Whether you're talking about a resilient child a resilient POW, or in fact, a resilient company. So there was a wonderful article in the Harvard Business Review by one of their writers, Diane Coutu, who had taken a good look at some of this literature. And the three factors you just mentioned were factors that Diane had noted. And that was that you had to be a realist. You had to accept the situation and not wish it away. Um, Resilient people have none of, of uh, <laughs> what um, has been called cheap optimism. You know, just to think, I'll just invoke the secret and all good things will come to me. I'll just think right and the situation will reverse itself. That turns out to be toxic to resilience. You have to unblinkingly say, this is the truth of it. I'm in this concentration camp. I don't know if I will ever be rescued here. From this vantage point of here and now, what can I do for myself? Can I breathe a little bit more deeply? Can I see this five feet between where I'm standing and the wall? What kind of exercise can I do in here? Because just in case I'm ever liberated, I've got to keep my body together. And if I exercise, my mind will be together. That is realism. There's a piece, actually, in It's Not the End of the World that I found fascinating. And that was when Jim Collins, who was the author of the book From Good to Great, yes. interviewed a very famous POW, Admiral Jim Stockdale. And he said to Stockdale, who didn't make it out of the camps? And Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. It was the optimists. Because they'd say things like, we'll be out by Christmas. Didn't happen. Well, then, we'll be out by Easter. They were still there. Out by 4th of July, and soon it's Christmas again, and they developed helplessness. And so Stockdale said they died of broken hearts. 
that's just what Viktor Frankl said. People in uh, Auschwitz that he was one of and then observing his fellow inmates, people would become helpless when they expected the environment to change in some way, and it simply didn't. And the ones who were resilient were these, I guess the best word to say for it is they're an optimizing realist. They look like dead on at what the situation is, but they can also see that there could be future possibilities here, but they deal with the here and now first. Yes. Speaking of James Stockdale, uh, I knew him personally because oh, yeah? I served on the, on the board of directors of uh, KQED, which is a major station in San Francisco, and he was invited to serve on the board, and he came on the board, and he was invited by the chairman, and and because he was introduced with all of his you know background and so forth. very very I was impressed with how what a what a reverent humility he had. He just was very very um, authentic, and whatever he spoke, whatever he said was very real and came mm-hmm. from his heart. And I guess he attended maybe three or four meetings, and at some point, I guess maybe the fourth or fifth meeting, whatever it was, he he said, "I have a, I have something I want to say to the board," and and he got up and he just said, "He said, uh, I'm letting you know that I'm leaving the board. I'm choosing to leave the board, and I want you to know the reason why. There's nothing personal here." I said, "But uh, I just don't uh, I I I don't appreciate the level of." Of, of negativity that's here on the board, so I'm leaving. And and because the board was very contentious at that time, and there were, you know, this side, that side, and another side, and and so he just basically left, and that was that. And again, it was sort of dealing with what's real, what's right there, right? And I think it was a great teaching. I don't know, some of the board members may have gotten it, and some of them may <laughs> not have, but it, but it was just very impressive. You know, when, when Jim Collins asked Stockdale, how, how did you survive the camps? Why were you a survivor? One of the things he replied was because of his faith, and that, that's important. There's, as I think in people who are resilient, some deep understanding of uh, a worldview that makes sense to them that is a container for their life. And that might be religious faith, that might be faith in the way that the Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg talks of it, and that is just being in the present moment, allowing it to unfold, and having that kind of warrior-like but soft ability to be with the moment, moment by moment, as it expresses itself. So there's that faith in the unfolding uh, possibility moment by moment. But faith is an important thing, Michael. Yes. So... Also, let's talk about discernment and judgment. Okay. Well, the when you're talking about the unfolding future, here's an interesting uh, distinction. There are people who cannot allow the future to unfold. They have some particular judgment. It's got to unfold this way. It's got to unfold this way. I need to find the man or woman of my dreams. Here's what they look like. Here's what they do. Uh, and... They can't, it gives you tunnel vision. When you have judgment, your mind is already made up. And most of the possibilities for what may unfold are now lost to your sight. On the other hand, to have discernment means the ability to be open, 
to be curious, to have skills like we call them intuition, but that's based in part in attending to the feelings of your body so that you know how it is. Your body will always alert you to, that's a dangerous person. They have some sort of, I can feel in me that they're not a trustworthy person. It's our gut. Discernment allows that to operate and for us to use all forms of intelligence to learn our way into the future. I'm speaking with Joan Borsenko. She's the author of It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, joanborisenko.com. That's B-O-R-Y-S-E-N-K-O, joanborisenko.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with Joan Borisenko, she's the New York Times bestselling author of Minding the Body, Mending the Mind, and It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. Joan, uh, one of the things you write about is optimism and and also pessimism, and so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the difference and, and, and realism also. So. Yes. Well, Michael, there is an old saying that a pessimist complains about the wind, an optimist expects it to change, and a realist adjusts the sails. <laughs> so what we want to be is realists. Here's the deal. If you're a pessimist, it is very, very hard to be what, what I like to think of as an optimizing realist. And that is you see the difficult situation, but there's part of you that has almost an X-ray vision. You can feel here are some possibilities that lie underneath it, but you deal with the situation at hand and stay grounded in that rather than running off into a, oh, gee, it'll all be fine kind of thing. I think what we're beginning to realize is that there is a difference between optimism and stress hardiness. And what we want is not to be so much an optimist. This is um, overrated and not that well understood what optimism is. But frequently, I think, it's confused with examples like the law of attraction. Just think right and you'll attract good things to you. Very often, um, optimism is confused with just thinking positively. And there's something much deeper than optimism. So when I think, when I talk about optimism, I usually put it in different terms. Uh, and those terms are stress hardiness. So let me give you a little background. A number of years ago, there was a big study done at um, Illinois Bell Telephone. So the Bell system was undergoing divestiture. And people there didn't know, just like today, am I going to have a job? What's going to happen to me? People were freaking out. And as fortune would have it, a couple of researchers, research psychologists, Salvador Matti and Suzanne Cobasa, had already been working for six years with the managers at IBT, Illinois Bell. And 
they, it was like a living laboratory. I got to say, wow, big stress comes up, divestiture. Who does well and who gets sick? Um, you know, who turns into an alcoholic or starts to use the pills or acts out in, in sex addiction or whatever? Because these are the things that happen to people who are not stress-hardy. I think people try to medicate themselves. They try to, you know, feel better through all of those kinds of um, addictive behaviors. What Maddie and Kobasa found was this. There were three characteristics of of managers who stayed productive, stayed present, were able to see what the situation was, and were able to optimize the situation by looking forward into, into future possibilities. And they had three characteristics. One of them was they liked to challenge. And instead of saying like, ah, it's the end of the world. I could not have a job tomorrow when going off into the pessimistic rap, which basically kills off your creativity. They said, this challenging situation, it's interesting. We talked in the last segment about the difference between judgment and discernment. Uh, when you think of something as a challenge, it makes you curious, and your discernment can operate. You say, well, is this a good road to go? Is this a good? So challenge. The second thing is control. And what we know, <laughs> I think we all know this in our hearts, the world is not controllable. We can maybe shape our, our future, but we cannot control it. Things happen. And stress-hardy people realize that, and so they don't waste their energy trying to control things that are inherently uncontrollable. But you can control, for example, do I get a good night's sleep? Or how am I with this customer on the telephone? Or So they would control what was controllable. And that obviates the kind of learned helplessness that makes us feel depressed. And, you know, it's the end of the ballgame. And the third of the, the three C's of stress hardiness, we've looked at challenge and control, is commitment. And commitment means you stay in the game. You stay engaged with what's happening. Uh, what happens often to people who give up, get depressed, lose their resilience, is that they isolate, um, they turn off, they tune out. But to stay actively engaged and present, that's another aspect of stress hardiness. And I think these are very important for the resilient mindset. What about those people listening that, that say, well, that's all fine and good, but, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm totally overwhelmed. I'm totally overwhelmed. You don't understand. <laughs> you have no understanding of how overwhelmed I am. And it's like, you can't possibly understand. What about that? What do you have to say to those people? Wait for my next book called The Burnout Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> because, do you know, it's very interesting. People often say that overwhelmed feeling, not being able to get through the to-do list, feeling like I can't manage, I'm juggling the balls and the balls are dropping. Uh, they often say, well, you drop the balls and you, you, um, you end up in some way stressed out. And what happens, it's very interesting to see people, there are, there are two responses to that kind of too many balls in the air. And one of them is to work harder and harder and harder. And that's not adaptive. It turns out that will lead you to burnout because you're putting out a lot of effort and nothing is happening. You're as helpless as before. 
And the other one leads to some of the things I talk about in the second part of It's Not the End of the World. I have a whole section of chapters called Train Your Brain for Success. Yes. And it's really changing your whole thinking style and attention style so that you're not focused so much on the balls that are juggling, but on a larger field of life. And in that larger field of life, thoughts come, thoughts go. Uh, Situations come, situations go. But you have enough perspective to see how they fit together. You've got some kind of pattern recognition going. And I would say to people who feel overwhelmed that you have to do what's counterintuitive. Take time to go walk in nature for an hour every day. Or take time to do yoga or qigong every day. Or to do dance. Or to do meditation of any kind. Because that actually develops the kind of right brain skill that gives pattern recognition. Because when we're overwhelmed, it's mostly a left brain thing. We're overwhelmed with to-dos. They're linear. They're listed. Um, We can always think of more of them. And what we need to do then is to balance the forest and the trees. So, hmm. nice work if you can do it. (laughs) Well, I think we have to do it. You know, that's the... (laughs) Um, that's really the challenge of it because I know so many good people who've burned out and I'm going to steal a phrase from my good friend, yours too, Wayne Muller, who says, you know, then you end up doing good badly and that doesn't help anyone. But one of the excellent things about burning out and dropping all the balls and finding yourself feeling depressed is that you begin to get the recognition, I cannot live like this. This is not sustainable. And to to have a life that's balanced, which seems impossible to us, I have to attend to this whole other area. I have to attend to my brain. I have to attend to my body. But I have to attend particularly to feeling, feeling that Sent that right brain sense of, I'm looking for a way to say this, um, Michael, a sense of interdependence with other things that somehow takes some of the, um, the edge off of yourself. And there's a part in It's Not the End of the World about reversing the flow from self to others because when we're stressed out, when we're in a situation that's threatening our survival... The tendency is to get bogged down with self-referential thinking, like, what's going to happen to me? And (laughs) that engages brain circuits that have trouble letting go. So we need to change the flow to something larger. You can do that by helping other people. I bet you've had a lot of shows on altruism over the years. Yeah, and we know that that changes the brain. Uh, The Dalai Lama calls altruism being wise, selfish, because while you're doing something for someone else, it's the wisest thing you can do for your own health and well-being. So that's very important. And that's why, you you know, you interview resilient people years later, and you see they're the kind of people they're mentoring other people. They're concerned with what's going on in their community. They're in touch with adult children or grandchildren, whatever that may be, 
but there's always a sense of generativity, of something beyond the limited self. And that, uh, to develop, that's important. Uh, and one funny part about developing that sense of generativity and right brain skills is that humor does it. Resilient people are usually very funny people. They see and appreciate the absurdities of life. They laugh a lot, yeah. Uh, one of the stories you told in the book was uh, a story, I think it was Morgan Guarantee, that were in the second building, the brokerage firm that was in the second building. Yeah, and... there was a there was a, a big um, brokerage firm, Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley, yeah, yes. and they were really resilient because, of course, you remember the the bombing, the bomb in the garage of the World Trade Center, which yes, <laughs> it that that was years before nine eleven, and resilient people notice what's going on. They're grounded in reality. They have that realistic sense. And the uh, the CEOs and said, "Hmm, this building is a symbolic target, and there's a good chance that there's going to be a terrorist attack in the future. So we can't just turn our eyes away. We have to stay engaged here. You see, hear the stress hardiness in that. Yes. We have to stay engaged here and deal with the situation. And so." What they did was they they hired a wonderful man, Rick Rescoria, who himself was a highly decorated Vietnam vet. And they did drills to get everybody off that floor. And they took it very seriously, constant drill, evacuation drills. And then they also found three other sites where people could go and work in case that there should be, God forbid, a bombing. And... So on the day that the um, the other tower was struck first, and there were 15 minutes between the two strikes, but within that 15 minutes, their floor took a direct hit. Everybody there would have died. In 15 minutes, they evacuated like several thousand people because they had practiced. And in the end, only seven seven of the Morgan Stanley people died in 9-11, and one of those was Rick Rescorla because they were busy scouring the floors trying to get everybody else off. And that um, that's important. And there are people who would not understand that, who would say, oh, now that's pessimistic thinking, thinking the worst. No, it's realistic thinking. I'm speaking with Joan Borsenko, and she's the author of It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Joan Borsenko. She's the author of It's Not the End of the World, 
developing resilience in times of change. So, Joan, let's talk about, in, in training your brain for success, you talked about the inner peace circuits. So let's talk about the inner peace circuits, why they're important. Do you know, if you have inner peace, Michael, I think we all realize this, we're okay no matter what. When we lose our inner peace, then we start obsessing about things. By very definition, if you have no inner peace, you're, you're not in the present moment. You can't enjoy, like, here's my old friend Michael, here's my old friend Joan, uh, the joy of just sitting and being with each other. You're worried about what's going to come next. And that's antithetical to resilience. To be re- resilient, you need to be able to operate in present time and not be stuck in time past or time future. And so learning to get those inner peace circuits running, learning to soothe yourself means coming back into the present. And it's quite parenthetically, let me say, that there's a very interesting book, I bet you know it, called Theory You, written by Otto Scharmer at MIT. Otto Scharmer is a, I guess I call him a disciple of Peter Senge. And he teaches something called presencing all over the world. And that is sensing your body, sensing the situation, being present. And what he says, and I thoroughly agree with this from a lifetime of experience, when you're in that open, curious state in your body, in the moment, there's a sense of inner peace, but you can actually feel the emergent future, the future that wants to emerge. Uh, You're in a kind of right brain dominant state. You've got pattern recognition, and all of a sudden you can think, well, there's a good idea, there's a good idea. And just hearkening back to, we were talking in another segment about the three secrets of resilience, and we got to two of them, and one of them was um, optimizing realism. A second one was the necessity to have faith, some kind of principle of operating in the world that makes a difference to you. And the third is a marvelous French word called bricolage, and that's the ability to have enough pattern recognition that suddenly you say, oh, gosh, I thought I needed new living room furniture, but I've just thought there is a sofa in my storage room, and there's a lamp in the bedroom, and there's a chair in the guest room, and all these would fit together. I can make a whole new living room out of these. Viktor Frankl talked about it during the Holocaust, people picking up some of them bits of string and wire from which they could fashion a shoelace, and from this they could live. It's what a company has to do to optimize their own futures, have that capacity, and it's related totally to running your inner peace circuits. So I think one of the most important aspects of running the inner peace circuits is getting beyond the obsessive thinking that brings about obsessive emotions. We tend to get stuck in emotions of anger, anxiety, and depression, of course. And one of the important ways to change your inner peace circuits, we've already touched on briefly, and that's meditation. Um, I was... uh, I had on my own radio show a couple of weeks ago Dr. Dharma Singh Khalsa, who's a brain longevity expert, as a guest. And he had 
done uh, with Andy Newberg, who's quite a famous researcher in terms of brain, uh, brain and meditation. He had looked at a particular type of meditation that comes from his Sikh background. Uh, it's called Kirtan Kriya, and it directly affects part of the brain that has been involved with trauma. So isn't that really interesting? You can learn to, the, to run the circuits of peace, but often you have to intervene when, like your brain has been traumatized by something, it's hard to get at the peace, it reruns something. So there are many techniques to do that, but I think we're learning more about which types of meditation can actually change the experience of your brain so that you can let go of obsessive thinking. A couple of um, meditations are right there, and it's not the end of the world. And <laughs> I'll tell you how I chose one of them. I turn on CNN right as the stock market's crashing. People are freaking out. You know, AIG is going under. And there's Sanjay Gupta, their medical correspondent, who says, feeling stressed? <laughs> he said, there's this great new study of compassion meditation, and I recommend that you try it. Well, you know, most people don't know what compassion meditation is, but of course it comes from an uh, old Tibetan Buddhist practice of having good wishes for yourself, things like, may I be at peace, uh, may I be happy, may my heart be open, may I be free, may I have the conditions for freedom. And, uh, of course, they're referring to inner freedom, the conditions where your mind is not obsessing on things when you have no ability to be free inside. And then you extend these, inner, these um, loving-kindness thoughts to people that you love, to strangers, to people that you're in conflict with, etc., different areas of the world. And there's tremendous evidence that they affect not only your brain circuitry and allow you to be happier, more present, and more at peace, but in addition, they, um, they affect your whole sense of well-being and body. One of the most amazing bits of evidence is they reduce the inflammatory response, which means that you would, um, almost every illness, the final common pathway is inflammation, even the frailty of aging. So how cool, you do loving-kindness meditation, turns on your inner peace circuits, reduces your trauma, reduces inflammation, increases well-being, good deal. Yes. Now they're hooking up, uh, you know, they've been hooking up Buddhist monks who are uh, deeply in meditation. They actually got permission from His Holiness to go, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, to go into uh, interview monks, uh, put the hook up monks who were in been living in caves for decades and 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 they found very they had very interesting results but how basically uh there was different ways that they there was no uh, cons these are monks that had not had any involvement with the outside world and so and and the way they were able to find parts of their brain that that where they had no concern no worry or no concern or no they they weren't trauma. They, whatever traumas they had, they were able. They had overcome them. They, yes, they that's very interesting. Yes, that's really fascinating because many of these monks had had significant trauma yes. um, during the time that the um, Chinese had invaded Tibet. Yes, yeah. And I'm wondering also now that we had, know that we can change the DNA, how this affects what you, the, 
what you've been talking about. Because we can actually change our DNA now. Well, say more about this. In which way can we change our DNA? Yes. And um, the, the, you know, what's very interesting, certainly, about DNA is it's very clear we've got DNA, we have genes, but the field in which they operate, the chemical field, the electromagnetic field, is just as important as the genes in terms of which genes express and which proteins are made. Yes. So our ability to change that field. And that's where, you know, people say, oh, changing your mind, what difference could it make? But there's a tremendous biological difference because the kinds of thoughts that you think actually release different hormones. And that's all based on what kind of emotions that you're feeling. So the, uh, the neurotransmitters that there are certain certain neurohormones, actually, that are manufactured by the brain that don't stay in the brain. They cross the blood-brain barrier that get throughout the body. And it turns out that some of those particular hormones will affect the whole body in such a way it creates a very different field in which genes can express itself. So, for example, rats who have tumors, this is research that was done, oh, 20 years ago, rats that are all infected with a virus that leads to breast cancer. If they're in an environment that's harmonious, uh, you know, kind of send them to the rat spa, they develop almost no cases of breast cancer. But if you put them in a stressful environment where rats are fighting, uh, if there's you know territorial fighting, not quite enough room, things of that, uh, the large proportion of them will develop cancer. So the genetics are the same, the virus is the same. The field of the body in which all of this operates is different. The, the last, the final chapter in the book, uh, It's Not the End of the World, is living with vision and purpose. So let's talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? Well, you know, here's... Here's this, Michael. We're sitting here, California, uh, in your New Dimension studio. What if there started to be a little tremor, and then we realized, ah, the big one's coming, the big earthquake's coming, and suddenly we would review our lives in this moment, recognizing how interesting, sitting here, and this is going to be the end, what would come to our mind? about what was most important in this brief existence. Uh, and I think what would come to most people's minds, and I, I know this from having worked for many, many years with people who were uh, terminally ill, is not so much what you have done, but the quality of your love and how you have been able to make the world maybe a little bit better place. And so when we have that vision and purpose, it makes all of life seem more precious and gives us resilience. Great place to go out on love and resilience. Joan, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Joan Borisenko. She's the author of It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change, published by Hay House. If you'd like more information about Joan's work, you can go to the website joanborisenko.com. That's Joan Borsenko, B-O-R-Y-S-E-N-K-O dot com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3332.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.